Welcome to the 34 Circe Salon. Welcome to Make Matriarchy Great Again. again. And welcome everyone to the 34 Circe Salon. This is the Make Matriarchy Great Again podcast, and we're going to make matriarchy great again today by talking about Medea. Hello, Don Sam Alden. Hello, Sean Marlon Newcomb. Good to be here. Uh, good to be back. And we are so excited about our uh, topic today. We have two wonderful guests, and we're going to talk about Medea. So let's introduce Vicki Noble and Miriam Robbins Dexter. Vicki, do you want to jump in? Sure. Um, <clears throat> uh, uh, I would have cheering for you, Vicki, but there's <laughs> yeah, technical difficulties. There's the so. clapping, the applause, right. <laughs> um, well, I uh, the the Medea comes for me and Miriam, Miriam from twin papers that we wrote way back when it, it, for a conference in 2002 we had uh we, we went to italy to a beautiful villa and and shared our papers uh under a conference that joan marler created it was wonderful and interesting and but i wanted to give a little background about how it is that that happened for us because there was a time when Miriam and I didn't know each other very well at all, just as as distant colleagues, <clears throat> and uh, and and friends and and students and uh, appreciators of Maria Gimbutas. Yeah. Um, so, I was working on my double goddess book. Uh, I don't, I think I, I was working on the double goddess. I didn't know what it was going to be. It started out as these figurines, you know, of two women. Um, so this was the late 1990s. And I, I actually, I wanted to talk about this because I often get a visionary experience. And Miriam, you'll have to tell me if this happens for you. I have a visionary experience of some kind, a sort of mystical knowing or association of things that shouldn't in my experience belong together but they do that i up through you instead of from the brain exactly instead of from something i already understand mm -hmm. and and that's what happened i was in first of all i was at a retreat at a buddhist center in colorado and i we were uh doing dakini practices and there was a lunar eclipse, a full moon lunar eclipse one night, and we did a big ceremonial ritual with lamas from, I think they were from Bhutan, you know, doing the practice. And it was a practice, it was a ritual in honor of White Tara, the White Tara okay. of Tibetan Buddhism. And I saw with my own eyes, and I wasn't the only one, I saw an imposition of the Cretan snake goddesses with their snakes and their in the one big hat that the one wore. And um, it was imposed on the Tonka of White Tara. Wow. And, wow. 
And then other things happened that were very magical during that evening. And, you know, eclipses are magical anyhow. Mm. But in this case, it was a particular uh, set of wires that met up in my brain. And I thought, this is such a long shot. How could there possibly be a connection between White Tara in Tibet and the snake goddesses in Crete? And it's over a period of, oh, you know, four, three or 4,000 years, 10 right. miles. It's not very likely. And yet it seemed really strong for me. So that's that was the first thing. Then I was invited to go with Janine Davis Kimball to Russia. We've mm -hmm. talked about that on some of our podcasts. Um, we went up uh, between the Don River and the Volga River, and we looked at Amazons, as the Russians had called their, the burials of these warrior women. Um, <clears throat> and I, a lot of the skeletons had a bent knee, like one leg. Oh, knee laughing. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? One yeah. leg was straight, the other was bent, and that that corresponded to my Dakini practices. The Dakini has a bent knee dancing pose. It's her classic pose. The Dakini is a Tibetan icon of a sort of sacred, free female, uh, a sort of a combination or an in-between a goddess and a fairy. And, uh, and, and Dakinis can be women. Uh, Dakinis take form. Yeah, take manifest form as human women. So, um, so I said that, of course. Uh, well, and even actually, right before I left for the trip, I had this funny hunch. I I got a picture out. Uh, I can show you this. <laughs> I got a picture out of an old book from 1975 on the Scythians. Uh -huh. And there was kind of a centerfold almost of this young Scythian girl, they called her. Uh, and she's covered in gold plaques and she's uh, amazing. But the but the thing is, she's got a bent knee. She's buried with a bent knee. In the grave. Yeah. 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 The picture was of a grave site. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she's covered in gold. She has a mirror. She has a bowl. You know, she has all these accoutrements. And, oh. and I... So I took that picture with me and I took a picture of a Dakini with me on the trip. Just, you know, really, these things are so intuitive and so non-rational and so non-linear. <laughs> that's, that's what I wanted to bring in because you can't write a paper from that, you know, in academic work in the world, scholarly work in the world. You can't say, I saw this and so it is. So then I spent the next few years putting the lines between the dots, you know, doing the deep dive into how could those two things be connected. And, and I got so excited. The final thing for me was the, the mummies in China. Absolutely. And, and Miriam had edited a wonderful book of, uh, I think mostly probably Victor Meyer's articles and others, uh, Mallory, you had, I think you were the editor of this book from the Indo-European Studies. It was on the mummies of the Tarim Basin. It was before Mallory and and uh, 
before they wrote it, what I was doing was editing all the Indo-European conference papers. Okay, so that must have yeah, come. Yeah. yeah. So I, yeah, I read that book and my mind just exploded, you know, and because there were a lot of uh, questions, like we have so many questions about this and that. And I'm like, oh, I know the answer. <laughs> <laughs> but who would listen to me? I have no credentials whatsoever. So oh. I called Miriam. It was such a long shot, even that. I called Miriam. I said, you know, I'm sitting on some information that I think is really important. I'm not sure quite what to make of it. And uh, I'm sure that you could. And would you consider coming and sitting in my library with me and looking at this? And listen? And she said yes. And that was it. We were off and running. What do That's you remember awesome. about that, Miriam? Vicki seated me in the middle of a room and put a rows of concentric rows of books around me to have me look at all of them and I was <laughs> I hadn't really believed in double goddesses until I saw all your evidence and I went wow <laughs> that's wow. wow wasn't it and I at some point I was you you <laughs> yeah, cast I mean, a, you cast a circle of knowledge around her Vicky yeah. yeah, but that wasn't in terms of our needing to work together. And I needed to have, you You need the visuals in this kind of work. You know, I needed to have her see what yeah. it was I was looking at yeah. and how the associations, how they could be associated with one another. How on earth can the Greek minads from the classic period be connected with the Tibetan Dakinis from a thousand years later? How is so that perfect? Possible? And then it got more elaborate, you know, as I went back further than the Greek classical period and so on. But uh, it was such an exciting moment. And it was, and then our, our collaboration was really fun and just yes. <laughs> really jazzy, really good. Yeah. Yes. Um, I, I, am, I am reminded of that quote uh my intuition is a spear thrown into the dark my intellect is an expedition mounted to find that spear exactly oh, Who said that's that? wonderful i want to say greta garbo but i'm not 100 percent sure yeah <laughs> that is fantastic i i call it feminist research you know i just think it's a feminist research methodology yeah. but it's exactly that you have to then go and find the proof you mm -hmm. can't just say it it sounds so corny you know and so uh so we started and I knew that Miriam so I so I picked Medea because she was in the cult in uh, the Caucasus in Colchis and in the late Bronze Age and and I sort of felt like every I, everything had moved toward Greece from the east by then and so I just I felt like let's make her kind of a She's a representation, a composite mm. woman to, to represent the shaman women that I was most interested in. It wasn't so much the warrior women that got me started. It was the shaman women. Mm. So, but the double goddess is about the warrior and the priestess and mm. the, the pairing of the two, uh, the two sort of governing forms, one mm -hmm. taking care of the temporal plane, one taking care of the more transpersonal or spiritual dimension mm -hmm. of society um, and I felt like I knew that that went all the way back 
all the way back to the Paleolithic, you know, and certainly back to the Neolithic. And but uh, but so we we focused on the period of time that is uh, uh, the same as classical Greece when Herodotus was writing about the Amazons and things like that. Um, and and one of the things I wanted to refer people to was a book by uh, Frank. Can't remember his first name. I'm sorry. Uh, I because I had been trying so hard to figure out the connections between the old European cultures and the Mediterranean culture in the Bronze Age and India and Tibet and the Yoginis and the Dakinis. I knew somehow they were connected, but it was, but what's in between, you know, and there's thousands and thousands of miles in between, but it's Central Asia. And after the wall went down, this guy wrote this wonderful little book uh, on the importance of Central Asia to mm. world history. And, and he said, he, he just, he said, the importance is, he said, it's truly the missing link in Eurasian and even world history it because is. of the so-called Silk Road that actually yep. started, you know, so much. Way, early. way before. Yeah. And so we just got going. I mean, we've been writing about this stuff now for that many years because we just spent the last 10 years writing uh, in a different way about the same material. So you have part? very, very um, geographically very close. Nice. Yeah. Do you have uh, do you have the name of that book, Vicki? Um, but you said this was what, Frank? Hang on, I do. OK, great. <laughs> <laughs> I'll even give you his for his first name. <laughs> if you could find it. Yeah. No, I actually have my footnotes right Yay. here and my bibliography. Let's see. Uh, Andre Gunder Frank. It's probably Frank, right? Mm -hmm. Centrality of Central Asia mm. from Central. 1992. So, you know, the wall came down in 89. By 1992, we were all getting the research from, yeah. from right. Central Asian and Russian archaeologists. And right other scholars you know and uh, yeah me, that was that was the source of the amazons i mean that's how i got to go on the trip with janine to russia because because that had happened and the russians an amazing had, trip that had to be yeah totally <laughs> tina with christina biaggi uh -huh. well it was really mind-blowing and what we kept seeing was these bent knee postures and and i kept saying that's a dakini pose that's a dakini pose uh -huh. but mean was quite precise as a an archaeologist and that wasn't her thing to say something like that but by the end of the trip 50 percent of the burials were in a bent knee posture mm. and, uh, and so we were all calling it the dakini pose by the end which is so interesting because that's the the bent knee pose is central to the uh, sacred display. Yes, what, uh, Victor yes. and uh, Mayor and I were writing about. Yes, and um, and the gorgon that just, you were writing again, about. It just comes together. Yeah, the gorgon, the minads, Medusa, everything. Yeah, yeah, and the gigs. <laughs> and some of them have wings, and you know, Dakini means a, a woman who flies through space. Sure. Yeah, and, it was. Yeah, and as you pointed out in your 
paper, Miriam, the connection between the the uh, bird snake imagery that is oh, absolutely yeah. Yeah. that is the imagery of the Neolithic. Yeah, wonderful. <laughs> wow. Yeah. Okay. Well, and then you, it was the mummies. You know, it was the work with the mummies that just finally pinged me. I just felt like, wow, now we know that they traveled that far before you know archaeology and anthropology told us oh no 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 nobody no they're they're all asian right (laughs) (laughs) yeah and that nobody could no they why would they ever have gone that distance and how hard it would have been and why would they leave home and you know since then we've really come to understand about the migrations and the refugees from invasions and we have the dna that proves it Finally, yes. Yes, yeah. And even the larger concept that people didn't actually stay in one place, that all over the globe, people uh, oh, moved. We move. Yeah. We, yeah. we go places. We explore. We all have Wanderlust. We do. <laughs> we sure do. Yeah. And we also often have to flee from difficult yes. uh, climate conditions. Yeah, or- right now. And it was invasions into old Europe that sent people scurrying in every direction. And that's what I was tracking. That's what was so interesting to me. You know, are these people related? And, you know, by the end of my Double Goddess book, I actually was able to show that there might be a legitimate connection, uh, uh, a genetic one, um, between Yeshi Sogyal the female founder of Tibetan Buddhism and uh, the priestesses in Crete. And I didn't know if I could really get away with that until the very end of writing the book. And and, uh, I asked, it was when Janine, well, I don't know. I can't remember all the details and it doesn't matter for for today, but uh, (laughs) it was very exciting to be able to tie it up like that at the end. Yeah. Were you able, Vicky, to uh, the the connections that were made for the what was uncovered in the archaeology and the DNA of that? Because we've talked about this is the exciting thing. I think that at least for me, with research, you you make that connection. So was was there further information that came out in the last couple of decades, either genetically or archaeologically, that makes that link even clearer for you? Because you were saying you were more reluctant to say it then, but you made that connection now more. Well, I was I was definitely evidence. I was sure of the connections culturally and mm-hmm. and across all of Afro-Eurasia, I was absolutely convinced that it was the women who were the preceptors of the religion. And yeah. even though there were different empires rising and falling and different chieftains and different kings and emperors and all that patriarchal stuff that went on in the Bronze Age that still during that period of time, what we saw all across the 10,000 mile scope was the women priestessing in in really similar ways so that it became my understanding or my fantasy, my, my imagination that there was one religion mm-hmm. that they were part of that was shamanistic and the and that they recognized and uh, were able to understand each other and connect and exchange and and uh, all of that because of the prominence 
uh, and the centrality of the women doing the shamanistic religion. So I guess well, with that, I was asking really, not just was there a, you know, a long over the scope of history cultural attachment, but I thought you, were, you had seen a specific connection between well, we don't have any DNA okay. uh, on or, or archaeology. I mean, uh, even archaeological. Okay. Uh, yeah, there's archaeological material. I do uh, write about it in the Double Goddess. Um, it's not. It's not profound, but it was profound for me. <laughs> yeah. No, I think because that, to say it. <laughs> no, that's an interesting, and it's also an interesting way to sort of like kind of broach our way into Medea, because what it. In both, uh, strangely, I have had a chance to look at your paper, Vicky, while we talked. I know that sounds crazy, but I actually have been able to look at it. And then um, Miriam's paper, um, you both talk about um, Medea's connection to that cultural legacy. So maybe could we talk, let's maybe set the groundwork of Euripides' Medea, because that's the Medea most of us know. And this is, I think that's our touchstone for everything we're talking about with this, how he portrays her, and then how well, this I'd like to, I'd like to even uh, just step one step back a little bit and pave the way with previous um, versions sure. of Medea, sort of like Miriam, like you do in your paper, you sort of set up this tradition of the, of the story of Medea before it gets to Euripides, who really was a um, a departure in many ways. A huge departure. Um, and the departure is in the middle of the writings about Medea, because the writings about her before Euripides and well after, hundreds of years afterwards, just make her this sweet, innocent girl. who And, and she had to have been a girl. I mean, when, when Jason uh, stole her away, and the the deities made her fall in love with him. I mean, she, boy, she, you know, she's just a scapegoat and uh, um, a receptacle of people's patriarchal views. At any rate, well afterwards, she's still young and sweet. And she had to have been no older than 15 when he stole her away because she was a maiden and in classical culture, maidens of 14, 15 would marry a man at least twice their age because then she could be domesticated. And that's the word for, for, um, for marrying, for a man marrying a woman, taming them. You domesticate them, you tame them. And they're more tameable if they're young. Oh my so, God. You know, <laughs> assigning idea, this, this middle-aged female uh, maliciousness. Sorceress. Yeah, it, it was just so out of all of the context of her. And um, beginning with Hesiod, who wrote just that she was a, a beautiful young woman and he with was beautiful a... ankles i loved that little touch that the thing <laughs> that was noteworthy about her was she had she had nice ankles i, yeah. I saw that too it yes. sounded like something from like <laughs> 1905 but yeah well this is this is actually a, a very um common classical trope <laughs> but he said was such a misogynist that if he didn't write anything negative about her she couldn't have had an, a negative uh, 
connotation in antiquity, except for Euripides. And when Euripides was writing, um, much later than Hesiod, yeah. much later, but in yeah. the classical era, it was exactly the time of the Pel Peloponnesian War, and it was a, a very um, pessimistic time for classical Greece. And so I think he he had the pessimism of the time and he needed a scapegoat and she was a Barbara, a barbarian. Anybody who wasn't Greek was a barbarian. And it's hysterical that the Colchians were considered to be barbaric. They spoke, I think it was Herodotus who wrote, or uh, I can't remember, but I have it in notes, who wrote that in Colchis, there were upwards to 70 different languages spoken. Wow. This is modern day uh, uh, Georgia in the southeast corner of, of the Black Sea. And it was connected to the Silk Road. It was an entrance to the Silk Road, really, really early Silk Road. And... Um, it was just the most wonderful cosmopolitan country. Lots of languages, lots of, of beliefs. And um, there could be female leaders in cultures, as well as female pharmaca. Um, right. So talk a little, yeah, talk a little bit about that designation. Okay, the pharmaca, pharmaca is... Um, uh, we get the word pharmacist from it. it a, a pharmaca knows herbs, knows um, what different herbs can, can do. And she's sort of like an ancient doctor. Mm -hmm. I mean, Euripides has her prey to Hecate, who by his time was um, not nearly as honored as she was in earlier antiquity in the Archaic Age. And um, she was considered to be like the primal witch. And so um, Medea's connection to her, of, of course, then was considered to be negative. But in reality, she was a descendant of Helios, the sun god, and related to, to Circe. And, you know, she... Um, Wait, we have to shout out Circe. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. yes. <laughs> who lends her name to our podcast indeed <laughs> very good <laughs> that's right 34, yeah. I forgot. 34 yeah. yeah absolutely so yes yeah. yeah, so she was this uh you know she was associated with healing and with medicine yes. and all and of that sort of thing with natural medicine just natural like medicine. The, which is exactly. a, a evil period you know the witches, who, the witches who were burned in the medieval period, exactly. uh, just, uh, natural healers right. and midwives, and and they couldn't stand that. Yeah, yeah, and that was the end of that long, long, long tradition. Yeah, in, and yeah, and carry it on, and we still carry it on. Yeah, and um, Miriam, you also were mentioning that she, uh, that Medea, in many writings. Um, was uh either immortal or uh... absolutely she was she was a descendant of helios so right. and um the authors talk about her immortal lips and she is a she can prophesy um she prophesies she 
uh, she was divine. And here, you know, there there was there's some Indo-European connection to her, and probably a lot of the languages spoken in Colchis were um, early Iranian languages, Indo-European languages. But she has golden hair. Of course, she's the sun. Mm. She has all these solar connections. Mm. And um, the, goddess, the goddess for the Scythians and for the Amazons was a sun goddess. Um, she was a hearth goddess, Tabiti. And that's very close to the sun. It's the center of the home. Yeah, but uh, I remember with uh, Janine's work. That that also the, sun? Yeah, the sun goddess was very prominent. And I, okay. I don't remember all the details, but. But the the primary deity was, and, and the the Greek historians say this: the primary deity was female. Ah, there we go. So she comes from this. She's associated with this tradition yes. of, Absolutely. as Vicky said, of shaman healers, priestesses, yes. semi divine connection, mm -hmm. that kind of thing. And then she is brought into Greece. Uh, or into Greek tradition, and from in order to be accepted into Greek tradition, she has to be pared down, right? But, oh, I want to. I just want to jump in just very quickly, um, John, before that, because I want to go back to the sun goddess and the goddesses. So, because uh, we are at some point going to be talking about uh, goddesses in Thrace and Scythian or Scythian culture. So, when you say sun goddess, Vicky, you said of the Amazons. Uh, were you talking about? Uh, which tribes were you talking about specifically? And were you also uh, talking about the Scythians or Scythians having we're a primary about, deity? We're talking about Sarmatians and Sauromatians, but the Scythians, the Indo-European Scythians were in there as well. Okay. Yeah. So and the they, Sarmatians and Sauromatians had a primary female deity is what you're saying. So did the Scythians. It was to Got be. It. Yeah, yeah. But I, I, I'm, my memory is too vague on this. I, it isn't in my paper, and it's just uh -huh. something I, I'm flashing on, uh, remembering about how important the sun goddess was to, to maybe the some of the Russian uh, traditions. Oh, yeah, just, yeah. It's an ancient, maybe it was Mary Kelly I'm thinking of, uh, who who really talked about that, that the god the goddess was not an earth goddess in that culture, but a solar goddess. So anyway. Well, it's it's um it's very interesting to me that in the northern Indo-European cultures, um Germanic uh and others, um uh Baltic, the sun is female. The sun okay. is female. Okay. In the That's southern ones, it's always male. Right. But the Indo-Europeans also had a, a sun maiden, daughter of the sun, and huh. she had uh, cognate names throughout the Indo-European cultures. So the Indo-Europeans always had a solar goddess. They, should, they had a solar goddess, an earth goddess, a river goddess. That's yeah. it. <laughs> and and, and sorry, sorry, please. I, I'm wondering about the the mixing you know that happened that we see in the DNA record so clearly from the from the period of like three thousand BCE uh -huh. when, when the invasions were so wholesale that they wiped out the most of the male population in Europe. The third, the third wave, yeah. yeah. And and married or you know, 
Oh, right. we're raped. <laughs> Fucked and carried raped. away. Yeah. Anyway, yeah. we blended, you know, and that's our heritage if we come from Europe in any way. Uh, the, yeah, good. Lucky you. <laughs> <laughs> But, you know, that's when it happened and that's when uh, so much uh, refugee activity happened right. and hybrid cultures happened. And so I wonder about uh, Colchis and the Caucasus. It would have been a fertile ground for a lot of different mixed cultures. And even the mummies, I've thought about this a lot, you know, the that they they have they they are indo-european some at least that yeah. well the men are and of course they then bear half indo-european children male and female but the the, the dna going into the tarim basin is male oh it's the, it's the um r1a r1 i can't remember if it's r1a or r1d uh -huh. um, but that's indo-european and and the indo-european same line basically went into europe absolutely old, old everywhere europe. yeah they went everywhere. So, and then the cultures after that during the the third millennium let's say they were often i think mixed always like mixed the culture troy is probably a mixture of those but it, but it, but a good mixture i can't help but thinking that those uh places that show up as still matriarchal um there's some way that they have the the two they have they've been <laughs> you know been infected with the indo-european dna and that's but, because the first and second waves of, of indo-european migrations were not as violent as I think is the third. That's destructive. Uh, there, there might have been some displacement, certainly in um, old Europe, right? Bonavo, yeah, they wiped yeah, out. Exactly, exactly. But, you know, the Mycenaeans didn't change Minoan culture quite as much as the later, uh, the Dorian invasion, for example. Yeah, I agree. I think the Mycenaeans are way more matriarchal than we give them credit for mm -hmm, mm -hmm. all right so we'll have to do a podcast episode on the mycenaeans in the future i see <laughs> and, uh, the, <laughs> and the the connection then in the medea fantasy that we're running right is, is that uh the caucasus was the home of the sarmatians yes and, and the and the and Greece is the home of the Mycenaeans. Well, I guess they came from somewhere, so that's not true. They may have come from the Caucasus. Now that I'm remembering, they and all came. I think they came. Um, well, they all had to come out of um, the homeland, right? Yeah, yeah. So sure. Can I just interject one thing? I think because this has always come up, and I've I've always been interested. This the DNA they talk about the male and female. It seems like the male is like you said was mostly uh, Indo-European haplogroup, but the female is actually a mixture of both the Indo-European haplogroup. Most of the most yeah. of the female DNA isn't Indo-European at all. I was um, uh, just looking, when they yeah. they don't take the women with them. Well, this was said uh, it has it as a West Eurasian haplogroup. So is it more? Because that's the listing I'm seeing that some of the haplogroups are West Eurasian and East Eurasian. So you've got a kind of a mixture of 
different tribes going on with them. So I'm yeah, not quite sure. sure. Yeah, okay. Yeah. All it's right. A, so so I just wondering because Vicky, that kind of ties to Vicky's sort of notion of where where those common connections could be. Uh, which I think to me it's fascinating. I, as Vicky knows, I'm fascinated by that, Miriam. That's why I kind of was looking at I've been looking at that sort of recent DNA right. stuff. Right. So. And we I do know. have uh you, I, oh sorry. Sorry. I just want to cross cross reference for our listeners that we do have a podcast episode that is specifically on the Tarim Basin. So if you want to learn more about that <laughs> section of our discussion, go ahead and check out that episode. Can I tell you um, what happened after our podcast? Um, a childhood friend of mine uh, listened to it and posted it and um, on Facebook. And um, one woman reacted to my talking about Victor and said, oh, my brother does this too. And her name is Heidi Mayer. <laughs> So now I'm I'm on Facebook connected to to Victor's sister, and oh. that all came about because of our podcast. That's wonderful, isn't that interesting? <laughs> That's wonderful. Oh I my goodness! To add one little detail that I I got from some Greek archaeologist Vasilakis, uh, who says that Medea's aunt Pasiphae of Crete. Uh -huh. Uh, so Pasiphae and Ariadne are the two, the double goddess in Crete. And, uh, and then he's quoting, he's quoted as calling her the immortal witch and a form of the moon goddess. So not just Circe, uh, but also Pasiphae. Yes, but I think probably that she's more solar than lunar, don't you? Pasiphae? Um, uh, well, uh, Ariadne and Pacific, I think I, I'm thinking they're all connected to Helios. Yeah, it, interestingly, just a shout out to the, the book Circe, uh, there's a really interesting section in the way Circe is portrayed uh, in that book by Madeline Miller, and they talk about Helios and how he's the father and how in, this, in her retelling of it, which I think you guys might find interesting, uh, you do see Medea come over to Circe and ask for help with herbs and how to perform a spell. So it's a very beautiful kind of retelling of it. But yes, she talks about the connection to Helios and how that Medea is her niece, essentially, Circe's niece. So uh -huh. because, because of Circe, we, we went out and read it. So anyway. So another question for you, Miriam. Um, Medea is also, she's one of the many royal princesses who was abducted mm. from from absolutely like Helen of Troy, you know, and and so is so she's also immortal, and um, absolutely she's immortal, and um, uh, the author is immortal. <laughs> Pardon? I mean, she was also a mortal person, oh, a mortal person, and immortal. Yeah, oh. yeah. So yeah, so this this sort of relates to what I what I started to introduce about the idea of now as we bring her into Greek myths, she has to be sort of pared down, exactly, and, yeah, and made less dangerous. So she is possibly the victim of an abduction, which is exceedingly common in yeah. Greek myth. You know yeah. that is how Zeus found all of his girlfriends. 
is he <laughs> abducted them. That was hollow. I mean, the list yeah. Poseidon, it goes on and on and on. Right. How Zeus so, found his girlfriends. That's a, that'd be a great title for a show. Yeah. You know, yes. basically. Yeah. yeah. Also, we have uh, hard evidence, written evidence from places like the, the Canassos. And uh, Elizabeth Barber gave us this in women's work that the women, the royal women were being abducted if they, you know, lived on an island or near a coast, they were in danger of being abducted uh -huh. and take these weaving factories. These are the first places where where slavery, women were females. Oh, yeah. And 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 Canassus was one that kept lists of the of the royal women that they brought into their weaving uh you know, factory, I call it. What wow. is interesting is that some authors, uh, classical authors, write about how Medea was of the royal line in Corinth, that she um, yes. could have inherited the throne and how um, Euripides twisted it. And also how in Corinth, despite the fact that, that supposedly, according to Euripides, Medea killed her children, there are all these texts that say the Corinthians killed her children. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that is, just, that's how the victors retell history. It is, it is. But it's so important that people know that, huh? you know, because they cast Medea as this horrible child slayer. And um, I remember that Carol Christ wrote that Euripides completely misunderstood the mother-child bond. <laughs> Miriam, you wrote too that she it wasn't just that she was a child slayer, she was a son slayer, perhaps too. Was that what that was important to them, right? That, that, she, was, that she was killing her sons. Uh, I think you have in your paper that it was that was a big that was a particularly big issue for the Greeks, not just a child, oh, yeah. the, oh, yeah. the most important children of all. Right, so, uh, right. Sons, of course. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Who cares about the daughters? But she killed the boys. Right. That's a problem in Greece. Yeah. Well, do, yeah. do, do we want to jump into um, yeah. this, so, like this uh, why, you know, sorry, not right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we have this, we have this creation, this crafting over the centuries of this legend of Medea, where she starts out perhaps as this sort of um, representation of all of these shaman women with this yeah. tradition of pharmakia and and this uh, prophetic power and uh, sorceress, the ability to do magic, quote unquote, all oh. that sort of thing. But now we're going to bring her into a Greek legend. So we have to sort of pare her down. Um, do you think that the portrayal of her as a maiden as you know a very young girl 14 15 years old do you think that was part of that sort of making her more manageable no i think that that in that case she was in in the earliest myth she was young and abducted okay many of the burials of warrior women are 14 15 16 years old in that age group yeah, with weapons. Yeah. 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 Okay. And forest tusks that are six inches long. And you know, they were they were awesome. So they, they were, were awesome. and then they're the two foot tall headdresses. Uh-huh. Uh -huh. <laughs> yes. Priestesses. So, so the, priestesses, yeah. yeah. 
Okay. So when they say that she was a young maiden, it didn't indicate uh, as it would in modern society, a sort of um, unformedness, a sort of uh, naivete, a sort of, she's, she's not, we would think, of course, of a minor, so some someone who is not mature, who has not come into her gifts, all that sort of thing. But at that time, it would indicate it would it could indicate a woman, a young girl who has already started her knowledge, has accepted yeah. her spiritual um, authority, yeah. all yeah. of that sort of thing. I think so. Okay. Um, I yes, but. But what is stressed in, in at the er, very earliest part in classical mentions of her is that she's divine or semi-divine. Okay. That puts, so it isn't a paring down in, because of that, I think. Okay, so it puts you in a special category when you- Yeah, she's a very special category. Yeah, when your grad dad was a And god. that makes, made me think, and I wrote in my paper that she- that Medea could be the name of a lineage, a dynastic lineage of priestesses, just the way that we know in the Middle East, the Magdalene was the name of a lineage of priestesses. Very good. And of course, um, in some text, um, she is the eponymous founder of a line, the Medes. Right. And I'm not only that, but there's a place, uh, an archaeological site in the Peloponnese, very near uh, Mycenae, that's called Medea. Uh -huh. And it has goddess figurines and, uh, you know, all of that. So, and she's, she's very old. Yeah. And in both places, yeah. we see the same kind of lineage. Mm hmm. Vicky, can I just ask you to say more about the Magdalene? I know it's a little bit off uh, topic a bit, Don, but I just was curious. I've never heard that before. About Damn it, Sean. Ah. Yeah, I know, exactly. <laughs> where, where... One <laughs> sentence, Sean. One sure. sentence. That's not my work. That's Merlin Stone. Oh, okay. no, that's Barbara Walker. Sorry. Barbara Walker, in her encyclopedia that came out in the late 1970s or early 80s, wrote, that the Magdalene was the name of a lineage of priestesses in the early, must be the early Christian or pre-Christian tradition. Christian, sure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Okay. Okay. So we have Medea in many of the, um, in many of the versions of her tale uh, going with Jason because a Greek goddess, Aphrodite, mm -hmm. uh, made her fall in love with him and made her help him in order that he may um, achieve his goal of getting the the fleece. Uh, sometimes in some texts, Hera and sometimes uh, who then has um, arrows shoot her with arrow, arrows. Sometimes Aphrodite. The the main thing is, I think, that um, the goddesses didn't think that Jason was heroic enough to do it on his own. <laughs> I thought it was clearly needed some help. Yeah. yeah, and in the Argonautica, when things go wrong, he cries. So he's not very heroic. <laughs> wow, oh, interesting, boy. interesting. I, I thought it was interesting too. That you said that he, uh, you point out that in Euripides, he sort of reproaches her about the fact that she was made by the goddess to 
be with him you know in his kind of like explanation yeah. of look hey I'm, I'm i'm getting somebody right. else but look you got a good deal for me and besides the goddess made you do this anyway so and yeah I that and was later, very interesting that you pointed so out. he doesn't owe her anything exactly right. and it's later like, on um when he uh has sort of thrown her aside so he can marry the uh princess glossy glauke um he says well really you know i'm doing this because it benefits me meaning politically but i'm still really attracted to you <laughs> i i think <laughs> we should make a, a modern day jerk isn't he I exactly. I was just going to say, we should do a play with. We'll make him like a hipster, and we'll we'll. <laughs> but babe, I still think you're hot. Exactly. I'm still into you. Exactly. You're still hot, but you know, I got other stuff. <laughs> oh my god! Talk a little bit about. I was kind of curious um, because in some versions, of course, she's associated with Hecate. Um, the witches got what becomes sort of the witches mm -hmm. goddess mm -hmm. but there also is a strong association between her and Hera because she um, when her children are killed or before her children are killed she brings them to a temple of Hera to try to uh, shield them Hera Acrya, yeah yeah because she's afraid the Corinthians will murder them and so she brings them to Hera's temple so that they can be protected but the Corinthians murder them anyway and then they have to atone for it by having um by having rituals in honor of the children yes yes up until in some versions of the story up until Roman times. So mm -hmm. establishing a long tradition of penance right. and propitiation. That's yeah. a hard word to say. Yes. <laughs> because they were the children of at least a, a demigoddess, right? And therefore they were sacred. Of course, yes. there had to be rituals for them. Right, right, right. Now, Hera Acrya. What does the what does Hera Acrya of Paracura? And I'm trying to remember exactly where that was. Okay. I can find it. Okay. Because there is uh you mentioned in your paper that there was some um some uh sources that say that she actually sort of established this particular aspect of Hera in this location. Did I read that right? Um, I I don't think I don't okay. see. Yeah, no. Okay, I'm I must have misunderstood then. But a lot of the Amazon uh, folklore or mythology includes the founding of temples and and cities, especially on the west coast of Turkey, mm -hmm. uh, and uh, but all up and down the west coast, not just uh, Ephesus but definitely Ephesus. And then also there's a temple of Hera in Samos that was oh, that, a yeah. very big deal uh, in the late late Bronze Age, early Iron Age. And, uh, and the Amazons are connected with that temple. And there are all kinds of um, griffin statues, not statues, but almost like finials, Miriam, they're they're the heads of griffins in in bronze or silver. That and certainly they, sounds Central Asian, doesn't it? Doesn't it? And they were brought as uh, sort of votives or something uh -huh. to to the temple of in Samos, 
and there's a museum there and you can see them and it's amazing. Um, Hera um, in some temples is um, the, the focused divinity and um, later on Zeus stands by her side. But um, but there were, you know, by the time the classical authors, like, well, early on, Homer made her a jealous wife, you know, it so changed her, um, her, who she was, her worship, her right. identity. She was the queen of heaven. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think that's why that connection to I her. I love that. Yeah, that connection to Hera really sort of jumped out at me because they they were both she, Medea, and Hecate are figures that were formerly sort of these glorious, wondrous yeah. figures. And uh -huh. as the classical Greece period continued, they all three of them became vilified and demonized and reduced. And reduced, exactly. Yeah. yeah. What do you think, Miriam, um, uh, just kind of come to a point with Euripides you you talk about how he normally isn't he normally is not a very misogynistic writer he does tend to have you know female right. presence in his work why do you think this particular uh, you were I think you you'd alluded to it maybe a little bit earlier about the period in history where it was you know yeah um, because of the Peloponnesian War I think he was being I think he felt that the Athenians needed a scapegoat and because she was not Greek, uh, she made a good scapegoat because he often writes with some sensitivity about women. But he does, I think he does just this horrible thing in, in Medea. Yeah. And there is a difference between giving a female character agency and making her the villain, right? Like he. Yeah. He gave his female characters agency. He did, yeah. Which is, which is, you know, which is a wonderful thing to do in drama as an actress. Uh -huh, it's very, uh -huh. it's, it's no fun to play female characters that have no agency because uh -huh. then you're just sort of standing on stage reacting to what happens around you. You don't get to do any of the good stuff. Like but, in the world. Like <laughs> But that doesn't necessarily mean that it makes them positive characters. It right. just makes them effective characters. Mm. And I, I think that's what Euripides did with Medea. He gave Absolutely. her agency. He made her... More agency than anybody else gave her, yeah. Exactly. Negative agency. But it was <laughs> agency to do ill as opposed yeah. to agency to do good yes and i think one thing we haven't said today in regard to miriam is the 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 original work that she did uh in regard to making our twin papers is that she has the classical knowledge and the linguistics to be able to read the texts and to go back so i say uh, you know, I don't believe it about Medea. I don't believe Medea killed her children. I think that's bullshit. And then Miriam proves it. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that's where the applause cue goes. People <laughs> should work together. <laughs> it made me think so much more about shamans. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, of course. I just want to throw yeah. something in too with Euripides. It's I think it's interesting too that he gives her this negative agency, 
but there is maybe a through line of kind of fear of femaleness or female untamed femaleness like in the bakai where you know basically the uh, the son gets ripped apart by the mother who follows dionysus or bacchus and so the women go crazy and tear apart the man once they have the freedom of will and agency and movement so there's a, maybe a little bit of a through line with him perhaps for some of for this sort of uh, not surprising greek fear of female power and I um, I was so interested in that that I looked up what real um, minads did because there 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 were minads, and um, they never did any of those things. They never <laughs> tore people apart, and they never drank. What? Right? I, no, no, no. I disagree. I think they invented beer. <laughs> I saw that in your paper. I, think that I saw that. invented beer. The, no, There's I don't. Beer in Sumer. In the Sumerian texts, yes, I know, but it's oh, yeah. it's uh it's not any well we don't have any texts in Greece before okay. that, but we have we have uh, beer and also uh, Egypt, and it was so connected with the women, and the women made it, but the um, classical scholars write that there's no evidence of the Minads having drunk it. Hmm. Oh, All I, right. TBD. I, I, I think not. Okay. Yeah. TBD well, sounds like another <laughs> another podcast. We, we could say they got they had alcohol, but they didn't get crazy. Let's just put it at that. No, but they <laughs> did get crazy. Well, no one got hurt. How about that? They had alcohol, but nobody got hurt. Okay. <laughs> they weren't drinking and driving. Okay. I was just going to say that. <laughs> Well, this fear of women being untamed, of course, continues yes. all yes. the way through European history. I think of, you know, eventually the persecution. Now. Well, now, absolutely. But the persecution of women in medieval times as well, well and the sort of bringing to heel of women um, yeah. who, you know, weren't were were forces of danger and and uh and wildness and can i just say that the medieval women were also the brewers <laughs> there you go yes and then, the, and then the monks took over and took all of the interesting herbal concoctions out of the beer and only allowed they made it legal only hops which put you to sleep basically oh, and interesting. don't make you wild all right, we so, definitely need to do a podcast on beer. Wouldn't that be fun? So, Vicky, the Sumerians made beer. The priestesses made beer, but there were severe penalties for priestesses who drank beer. Well, that's like the Vestal Virgins. Once the state yes. comes yes. in on it, then there are rules like Yeah, that. and I mean, Sum Sumer is patriarchal. Yeah, mm. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> All right. This is fun. <laughs> yeah, we've we've really got two is. more podcasts out of this. <laughs> so, <laughs> so shall we sort of bring to bring this to a close? Any mm -hmm. final thoughts on Medea and um the earlier versions of Medea versus Euripides Medea, that kind of thing? I have a little thing that isn't about that, but I was thinking in terms of Sean's question earlier about the Tibetan connection to the Mediterranean, mm -hmm. um, the the chanting, you know, all of the different mm. stories about Medea in, and Miriam, you would know this in detail. They, they talk about her magical formulae and 
her incantatory spells, her karma. I never heard that word before. Um, Medea reveals speech as the characteristic source of female power. And you know, it's the throat chakra and it's Absolutely. and I and it's linked with the yoginis in India who uh -huh. made songs of realization after their practices and their rituals. And the power of the mantra. Yeah. Yes, exactly. The Tibetan mantras are everything. I mean, that's my practice. And so that was a lot. That was a big part of the kind of evidence, but it's not really archaeological, Sean. You had asked about that. And it's certainly not DNA, uh, but it's uh, but it's a strong link. The, the incantations and magical prayers. And the early uh, Greek authors talk about Medea's immortal lips. Right. Ah. Right. And then later right. we talk right. about the witch's incantations. Uh -huh. and, right. and it's a bad thing. Right. Right. All of a sudden prophecy and uh -huh. the deeply spiritual ability to um to foretell what's going to happen uh becomes negative. Yeah. Right. Right. And taken that to extreme, we've got a being a bad Martha episode coming up about gossip. Oh. And how the idea of women talking to one another becomes <laughs> demonized. Yes. Wasn't um, a, an older woman called a gossip? A godsib was the yeah. original, yeah, was the uh, sort of original derivation of the word. And it meant, um, it essentially meant godparent. It meant someone who was char someone who was part of the family to take care of the education of the younger members okay. of the family. So look how it's degenerated. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Sean, any final thoughts? I have to unmute myself for them. No, I, I, I think, yes. <laughs> but no, I think the, the wrapping this up, I, I mean, for me, the, the fascinating part is how the playwright takes and transforms this, particularly because we've done, as we've talked about our episodes on the, the loving nature of the ancient Greeks towards women. <laughs> so, just, uh, uh, but I think this kind of really pulls it together. But yes, there's so many other strands that I'd like us to explore from this conversation. So yeah, we got threads going in every direction. Yes. So. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's what used to happen to me and Miriam and our friend Laura. We were visiting with each other in LA uh, about 2010, and uh, and we didn't do it often enough. And I, I personally don't take vacations. So I suggested let's create a project because so we can have lots of lunches. And we'll get together because we'll call it work. We're working. We're still doing it. <laughs> Brilliant. Brilliant. I love it. Well, thank you so much, Miriam Robbins Dexter and Vicki Noble for being here today and this incredible conversation about thank you Medea. all thanks for making it happen you guys yes both of you and thank, thank you, you sean marlin newcomb and thank you don sam alden and i i believe even without our music available we can we can wrap this up and say thank you to everyone for listening to the 34 cersei salon make matriarchy great again we've been talking about Medea. we will talk to you again soon bye-bye take care everyone and blessed be Bless you.